Welcome to the Urban Lab with Sam Chandon, the podcast on cities and the built environment, featuring leaders in industry, research, and policymaking. Welcome to the Urban Lab. I'm Sam Chandon, Silverstein Chair of the NYU Shack Institute. The Urban Lab is a nonpartisan program featuring leaders in private industry, public service, and research who join us to share their views on improving all aspects of urban life, the competitiveness of cities, the housing and labor markets, and urban epidemiology and public health. My guests today have both served in critical roles in shaping housing policy in the United States. Seth Appleton is president of the Mortgage Industry Standards Maintenance Organization and was previously Assistant Secretary of Policy Development and Research at HUD and head of Ginny May. Alfonso Costa Jr. is Executive Vice President of Falcone Group and was previously Deputy Chief of Staff at HUD. Both are currently serving as members of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Housing Advisory Council. From that center's website, I'm pulling the following. Uh, The pandemic elevated the critical importance of housing stability, quality, safety, and affordability. And policymakers responded with unprecedented levels of housing assistance. Yet many struggling families still face the threat of eviction or foreclosure, while rising prices and limited supply are hamstringing would-be homeowners. Long-standing racial inequities, evident in disproportionately high housing costs, entrenched segregation and poverty, and stark disparities in homeownership and family wealth remain unaddressed as well. To discuss those issues and how we can chart a path forward as we begin to emerge from the pandemic, I'm delighted to be joined by both Seth and Alfonso. Gentlemen, thanks for coming back to the show. Seth, if you could kick us off. uh, I know that throughout the pandemic, there has been tremendous concern around what would happen to renters that uh, have been unable to make their rent payments. And we've seen sort of a patchwork of federal and local interventions designed to uh, limit uh, the the number of evictions in the United States. That has been coupled with uh, what you and Seth have described as an unprecedented amount of emergency rental assistance. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of interventions we've seen and uh, your, your assessment of how effective they've been? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's great to be here today. You know, I, I think as you pointed out, there have been a patchwork of uh, moratoria throughout the country that were really designed to ensure that folks were not, uh, you know, uh, forced out of their their homes um, at the height of the pandemic, causing further disease to spread. But really, the the, the answer at the end of the day, right, is rental assistance because uh, without that rental assistance, renters are not going to be able to catch up. Uh, landlords, you know, themselves uh, in many cases owe mortgage payments. They're not going to be able to make their payments. So it's really critical that these programs are designed and implemented as quickly as possible um, so that renters can, can catch up and uh, landlords can also pay their bills and get back on their feet. Uh, Alfonso, what is your sense today of how renters are faring? Uh, one, have they been able to uh, take advantage of and access uh, these programs and, and the interventions that have been made available um, in terms of rental assistance? Um, and have we seen sort of the the, the wave of foreclosures, uh, or I should say the, the wave of evictions, uh, foreclosures certainly on the property owner side, uh, but the, the wave of evictions that uh, you know, many people had been warning of early in the pandemic? So to answer your second question, I don't think we have yet seen those quote unquote 
wave of evictions that many of us had feared, especially myself, Seth, and our colleagues, our former colleagues at HUD. Uh, if you had asked us in the spring slash summer timeframe of 2020, uh, that was exactly what we were uh, bearing down for and trying to execute policy to prevent something like that from occurring. And our, our partners at the Department of the Treasury and other executive branch agencies uh, similarly were aligned with that mission of, of preventing uh, widespread eviction. And, and I, I would personally state that I think the uh, the, the Biden administration has, has done a great job uh, curtailing any potential wave uh, moving forward. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to the the most recent stimulus uh, funding to, to complement and, and supplement what was, was previously passed. I would acknowledge, and I don't know if your listeners have had the chance to look at a New York Times article from this week regarding the aggregate $45 billion that has been passed for emergency rental assistance across the various COVID relief bills. And to be, to be honest with you, uh, Sam, uh, the, the funds are, are slower at getting out than I think a lot of renters and landlords and, and everybody at large w- would hope for. Um, I, I don't think any one individual or, or any one organization or, or governmental agency is to blame for this. Uh, I do think that it requires a concerted collaborative effort in order to take on such a a large task and and really critical task that that has implications for the entirety of of the country, especially economically, uh, but but more importantly from from a health standpoint. But I would say that you know I, I was you know during my time at HUD when, when Seth and I were were both being approached by by different industry groups and or lobbying firms about how. Uh, any potential emergency rental assistance programs would look in terms of how the funds would be distributed and, and what types of programs could be uh, created, really brand anew, uh, for for this this you know, unprecedented circumstances, the set of unprecedented circumstances that we find ourselves in, and with a lot of the 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 I would say uh, influence and type of uh, you know, really caring for uh, this type of rental assistance and, and the promotion that that was exhibited for these types of funds, there wasn't much thinking from the private sector in terms of how the the governmental bodies could actually get those funds out. And I think we're seeing that right now. And I really think that there should have been more focus from the, the private sector entities that that push for these emergency rental assistance funds to work closer with governor's offices rather than focusing too much on the Hill or uh, both with the Senate and the House, because as you can see now, it's really on the local level by which these funds need to be distributed. And um, we're seeing that play out now. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, bottom line, you know, if our measure of success in the policy interventions of the last year is how many folks might have found themselves subject to eviction, um, notwithstanding the challenges of getting a massive new national program rolled out, you know, on you know at remarkable speed. I have the impression uh, that you know, the, the program succeeded in, in um, precluding uh, those foreclosures, giving landlords and and tenants a, a requisite degree of flexibility. Uh, you know, th- that being said, 
with the benefit of hindsight, is there something that you wish then you had done differently in terms of engagement you know, with, with local or, or, or state government? Yeah, I would say to, to go back to my, my comment a moment ago is, you know, I, I wish personally that I would have interacted more so closely directly with governor's offices on how they think their respective states could have better facilitated the distribution uh, of these funds. And granted, in, in hindsight, 2020, you know, everything can be rectified and improved. And obviously, the governor's offices in 2020 and and even I've been told right now uh, are, are facing again an unprecedented set of circumstances from a COVID response standpoint. Uh, but you know, it, it's something that I really do hope that as the Biden administration and the, again the different industry trade groups and uh, both those on the Hill and those uh, across respective states throughout the country work together in a. In a collaborative fashion to get these funds out, that they really do think about how perhaps there should be some more nuance from state to state, uh, given the existing infrastructure that the states have uh, varied um, depending on their geographies. Seth, one of the things I wanted to ask you about here is, you know, I've heard from a lot of folks that although there have not been evictions uh, at a scale that we had, uh, you know, know, that that, uh, would have been highly problematic, that we do have millions of renters around the country that may have a significant, um, you know, buildup of of, uh, unpaid uh, rent. And there are questions around, you know, when these eviction moratoria expire, um, when the protections aren't there, what happens? Because in many cases, people have built up a, a, a level of unpaid uh, rent that they're simply never going to be able to catch up. Uh, how are people going to manage in that scenario? And uh, at the same time, how are landlords faring? Um, you know, there's so many small landlords across the country that are dependent upon those rent payments to pay their own mortgage, to pay property taxes, to pay insurance, maintenance. Uh, how are they managing through all of this? I think it's a great question. Uh, you know, when I when I think about evictions, it's important to also note that that um, as you noted, there's the patchwork across the country. There's the CDC moratorium, of course, also. But you know, there is because eviction is is inherently um, a local administrative or judicial process. Um, it's kind of apples and oranges uh, by jurisdiction when that kind of term actually. Uh, comes into play, right? When it, is it when something gets filed? Is it when an eviction gets enforced and tenants are required to vacate? So there is a lot of um, uh, differentiation and variation across the country um, that it's important to note. That being said, I think that, that you know, what was helpful was the, the um, you know, stimulus payments, certainly, um, unemployment also, had a big, uh, you know, had a big lifting effect uh, as far as allowing folks to pay their rent um, early on. And now, at Alfonso's point, it's really about the the execution and implementation of the rental assistance. I do think that landlords, to the extent um, that they're able to weather it, are, you know, from from what I've heard anecdotally, uh, more than willing to work with tenants. Um, to resolve the issue of back rent, uh, get the rental assistance money, because uh, you know they want to they want to make sure um, that uh, that they have funds to pay their bills too, and and simply enforcing an eviction, while it it, it might kind of um, uh, 
end the tenant uh, landlord relationship, that doesn't necessarily mean the landlord's going to be able to be made whole to pay to pay their bills too. So I think that that they're in it together um, in a lot of circumstances, particularly the mom and pop landlords. Um, I do think that it's that it's critical uh, for this assistance to get deployed um, expeditiously. Um, and I think that that's really the only way the tenants are going to be able to to be able to catch up. Um, the you know tenants uh, renters are, are were probably disproportionately affected in certain states depending on their the industries they were employed on in by COVID. And uh, again, this this assistance is really the only way that they're going to be able to catch up in the in the foreseeable future, if at all. Right. So, so with that in mind, actually, at, at this juncture, tell me a little bit about the Bipartisan Policy Center's Housing Advisory Council. You've both been appointed uh, to this new council. Uh, it's headed by or chaired by Henry Cisneros, uh, you know, the former uh, uh, former Secretary of HUD. Um, a lot of sort of you know, folks with you know significant you know policy experience in the domain of housing um, what is the uh, mandate and agenda for uh, for the housing advisory council look I I think um, that BPC has a long-standing reputation um, as being an organization that can pull together solutions oriented um, individuals from both sides of the political aisle to find where the common ground is and then uh, you know, rally around that common ground to advance um, common sense public policy solutions. And so I'm excited to be part of the effort. I think you know, there's obviously hot button issues that, that, that both sides of the aisle um, acknowledge that they won't be able to agree on going forward. But I think you know, in between those lines, there's a lot we can work on, whether it's kind of, you know, FHA and Ginnie Mae modernization, which is so critical to, to serving low and moderate income and minority home borrowers, um, whether it's, you know, uh, recapitalizing um, aging public housing, there's just a, you know, whether it, it, it's tearing down uh, regulatory barriers that unnecessarily drive up the price of construction and development, there's just a lot of uh, solid middle ground where there's folks on both sides of the aisle that, that I'm excited about the opportunity um, to see where it goes. So can you actually uh, elaborate on that for a moment? You mentioned you know, some of the you know, regulatory issues uh, that uh, may be putting, uh, exerting upward pressure on house prices and, and construction. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about actually your work at MISMO because it, it does bear on this you know, very closely. Sure, we're certainly not in the you know not in the regulatory barrier as far as construction and development uh, world, but MISMO is the mortgage finance industry's um, standards organization, and we bring together stakeholders from across the the real estate finance ecosystem, um, such as lenders, servicers, uh, technology companies, vendors, the GSEs, government agencies, regulators and others to tackle some of the industry's thorniest challenges. Um, and I think it's a really important time in the industry and really an inflection point because uh, the cost to originate a mortgage is uh, now on average about $9,000. I think with, uh, with the development and adoption of standards to really improve the flow of information, the digitization of processes and, and to speed up the overall uh, uh, mortgage process end to end, 
we can hopefully bring that down. And uh, bringing that down is really important, um, particularly for uh, smaller balance uh, borrowers, because to the extent that that $9,000 has fixed costs embedded in it, uh, they disproportionately impact uh, the smaller balance borrowers that are that are more often than not, you know, going to be your entry level um, uh, home buyer. So really excited about the nexus between the two. Um, you know, Mismo Solutions have been been uh, you know at the center of the industry's efforts uh, to progress down the road of digital mortgage. Uh, they've led to, to you know you know faster closing times. Uh, you know, better compliance, reduced frauds, a whole host of benefits. And uh, it's a, uh, it's really, you know, a great time to be part of this organization, because I said, I, I think we really are at an inflection point when it comes to, to mortgage finance, um, and the ability to utilize and leverage standards um, to hopefully drive down some of those, those ballooning costs of origination. Yeah, and thank you for uh, correcting me when I referred to regulation. Certainly, that's you know one side of it, but the you know the value and importance of standards, as you described, you know, in reducing the transaction costs of participating in this market. Um, you know, as an economist, I've got to believe are going to lend themselves to better outcomes uh, for every participant in the transaction, uh, perhaps with the exception of the beneficiary of, of the transaction costs themselves. Uh, Alfonso, you and I have talked about another element of uh, you know, the, the, the cost burden in, in the housing market, and that uh, relates to lumber prices. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so... I would say to all of your listeners, I would suggest taking a look at a Wall Street Journal article from February entitled, Lumber Prices Are Soaring, Why Are Tree Growers Miserable? And I think it's an interesting piece because it delves into a different side of this lumber story that we've been seeing and hearing about beyond just the, you know, the, the, the tariffs with Canada and an imbalance of supply and demand and, and you know, the uncertainty surrounding covid um, you know, right now, prices for lumber are about $1,300 per thousand board feet. And I'm talking that is 4x what we saw around this time, a little bit earlier in uh, 2020. And from that Wall Street Journal article, you'll see a story about how timber growers across the, the south, the, the southern po- portion of the United States, where much, much of the country's logs are harvested, that they haven't really gained anything from the run-up in prices for, for finished lumber. And while lumber prices have continued to set records in 2021, the prices of timber used to make lumber has remained low. And it's interesting because the region's sawmills, um, are, many of them have been bought up by Canadian firms that one could argue are, in a way, uh, you know, seeing profits that, that, they've, that they've never seen before. And so I think that's an interesting story to look at in understanding all of the dynamics surrounding lumber prices, because I think it goes beyond just the kind of high level, oh, trade tariffs with, with Canada and imbalanced supply and demand. Um, I, I really implore the the, the Biden administration, uh, especially the, the United States Department of Commerce, to, to take a close look at, at what is transpiring across all these different players in, in the lumber industry. Because as you said, Sam, it, it is having a deleterious effect and impact on housing supply. And as you very well know, we are behind by millions of units across the, the for purchase, but also the for rental space in this country. And if lumber continues to be a, a downturn weighing on the, uh, the ability to, to, to rebalance the supply demand 
relationship, we're going to continue to exacerbate that that imbalance and continue to have uh, issues in terms of providing households with the safe, sanitary, quality housing that they deserve. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And sort of you know, issues around affordability, both in the for sale market and the rental market. You know, are, are very real. So if we shift gears for a second to the formal affordable uh, segment of the market, uh, Alfonso, talk to me a little bit about the low-income housing tax credit 4% lock. Since we have um, you know, uh, listeners from uh, across a broad spectrum of uh, the real estate market, many of whom are focused exclusively on commercial, uh, maybe begin by telling us a little bit about what that is. Absolutely. Well, I know you uh, actually held a podcast session earlier this season with Arthanius Williams from Arbor. And I know you've had Ed Pinto on from AEI as well, but to kind of supplement uh, with those sessions uh, included, which I encourage the listeners of this podcast to listen to to those sessions as well, because they were phenomenal. Uh, The low-income housing tax credit is essentially broken into two different uh, avenues, the 9% low-income housing tax credit and the 4%. The 9% is a very competitive uh, process by which developers compete uh, along with other developers on an annual basis at a state's respective housing uh, finance corporation or housing finance authority to to uh, obtain tax credits uh, for their respective projects. The 4% is, is a little bit different. It, it's not competitive in the sense that you need to uh, directly submit an application and uh, box out other other developers for the allocation. Instead, you work with local housing finance authorities that issue private activity tax-exempt bonds that serves to be about 52 to 56% of your respective capital stack for a project. You complement that with about 20 to 25% of the tax credit investor equity. The tax credit investors typically nowadays being large institutions, including insurance companies and the like. And then your outstanding 15 to 20% of the capital stack, you usually make up with what's called soft financing or or gap financing. And that can take the form of of various uh, sources of, of funds, whether it be from HUD, including the Home Investment Partnerships Program, uh, which trickles down from uh, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development down to state grantees, to then um, also provide them to to local grantees, including counties and, and cities. Uh, it could look like CDBG dollars, which community development block grant dollars that are appropriated on an annual basis to HUD and flow to, to grantees throughout the country. Uh, but it can also... Uh, those dollars in terms of covering the soft financing gap, uh, a lot of developers will take on what's called a deferred developer fee. So with a tax credit project, your developer fee can be upwards um, of 16 to 18% of the total development cost, uh, which for your commercial real estate or your market rate residential developers, uh, that'll probably blow their minds a little bit. They're probably used to the four to four and a half percent range for developer fee. Now with the 4%, uh, tax credit rate lock that, that you mentioned, Sam, uh, that was a part of the December congress- congressional bill, the COVID relief bill of $900 billion, uh, $900 billion in pandemic relief and $1 trillion in government funding for the rest of, rest of fiscal year 2021. It, what it did was it permanently locked the 4% floor on the, on the tax credits. And 
it had traditionally or more recently been hovering around 3.07%. And that's really important to know that it's now been raised and the floor has been set at 4% because what that does is for those developers who are pursuing private activity tax-exempt bond financing alongside uh, their local housing finance authorities, they don't need to stretch as hard for other forms of soft financing, including, again, for example, the home investment partnership dollars or the CDBG dollars that are otherwise eligible for different types of activities beyond new construction of affordable housing. And as you can imagine, Sam, that that is very important during these tough times where different local bodies of government are stressed from a budgetary standpoint. And so being able to free up those dollars potentially for other uses while simultaneously allowing affordable housing developers to more easily allow deals to pencil out, it's a win-win for everybody. And um, although you could argue that we've seen a slight dip in the equity pricing per credit for tax credits uh, since the passage of that bill in the December 2020 timeframe. It hasn't been significant enough to counteract what the pros or benefits have been since the locking of the 4% floor. Um, I do think it will be very interesting to see if the Biden administration decides to raise capital tax uh, capital capital gains tax rates, what that will do to the uh, affordable housing industry, in particular, the, the low-income housing tax credit industry. Um, as you can imagine, it will probably increase the equity pricing per credit because the tax credit investors will be more inclined to want to invest in the tax credits that they yield from their equity investments in these types of projects. But um, it's an exciting time for the affordable housing industry, but it's also uh, you know subject to a lot of challenges. And and it's important that that individuals like like you, Sam, and also the work that Seth does uh, continues to to help facilitate the conversations that that lead to important policy decisions. Yeah, and another another recent policy development, Seth. If I can ask you. Um, as it relates to affordable housing, uh, the HUD Office of Recapitalization uh, earlier this month announced a fair cloth to RAD option, and that's, of course, rental assistance demonstration uh, that's intended to create uh, new, what they refer to as deeply affordable units. Can you tell us a little bit about that and its significance? Well, I think that it's, look, I think that the rental assistance demonstration broadly has been kind of a great example of bipartisan success. It's allowed uh, for the recapitalization and the the kind of uh, injection of private capital in a true public-private partnership um, to help move forward affordable housing, um, you know I think that uh, I think that the Faircloth notice um, is going to be very interesting to see how that's implemented, see what the timeline is going to be and the impact. But I think that a lot of folks are watching carefully and are excited, and I'd love to hear. Alfonso's thoughts on it, because I know that, that he's super close to that part of the industry, particularly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was I was really fortunate enough to work with both the Office of Recapitalization, which is a part of the FHA or the Office of Housing at HUD. Um, and they're led by the director of, of that office, Tom Davis, but then also the Office of Public and Indian Housing. And, you know, those two program offices work really well together in order to effectuate the rental assistance demonstration, which was introduced during the Obama, President Obama administration. And as Seth referenced, it, it's a great demonstration, um, no pun intended, of, of what bipartisan action looks like. And going back to what you both were mentioning earlier, the, the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Housing Advisory Council that Seth and I are, are lucky enough to be a part of, which is, again, chaired by President Clinton's former HUD Secretary, Henry Cisneros, along with former Deputy Secretary of HUD, Pam Patton-Ode, and 
and also chaired by former mayor of Philadelphia, Michael Nutter, and former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner. Uh, one of our other members of the, of the council is uh, former uh, Office of Public and Indian Housing Assistant Secretary Hunter Kurtz. And he worked tirelessly along with many other great career civil servants in the Office of Public and Indian Housing, including uh, Dominique Bloom and Danielle Basarash, to, to get the Biden administration to this point where they have felt comfortable recently to issue this Faircloth Authority notice, which, as Seth mentioned and Sam, you alluded to, uh, creates a new pathway by which to activate existing federal authority to tap into up to 220,000 units of deeply affordable housing units that, that public housing authorities could potentially develop uh, in the coming years. And it's extremely exciting because, uh, you know, the, the public housing authorities can use HUD's various public housing mixed finance programs with pre-approval, obviously, from HUD to convert their Section 9 uh, public housing authority to a long-term Section 8 uh, HAP or housing assistance payment contract following the construction of those units. But again, time will tell, as Seth said, in terms of, of how this plays out. But regardless, it is very encouraging, especially given the different budgetary constraints that, that HUD is subject to and the, the, the different uh, innovative solutions that, that now are, are made available to PHAs. Uh, I think it will be a, a benefit in the, uh, in the positive thing for, for the affordable housing space going forward. Yeah. So to, to close this out in a moment, I want to ask each of you sort of what the biggest thing is that uh, you feel folks uh, interested in affordable and workforce housing should be looking for or watching over the course of 2021. But before I do that, uh, one uh, last uh, uh, question for, for you, uh, Alfonso, you've been very active over the last couple of years in uh, the discussion, the dialogue around opportunity zones. Uh, where are we with opportunity zones right now? I'm not even sure if that lends itself to a, a brief answer, uh, but it, but if, if it does, uh, please let us know. Yeah, I don't know if it does lend itself to a brief answer, but I think what we've seen thus far in the OZ space, you know, it's still, it's hard to say this because it seems like opportunity zones have been around for a long time. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the Department of the Treasury, more specifically the IRS, only released the final regulations in December of 2019, and they didn't even go into effect until March of 2021, or 2020, I apologize. And so we're a little bit more than a year since the final regulations have been issued for Qualified Opportunity Fund investing. But uh, based on what I've been able to glean, uh, whether it's from reports that HUD has issued or even uh, the Urban Institute, you know, there, there are a, uh, a variety of different uh, ways that you can look at at the, at the program thus far, but I would say that it has yet to hit its peak in terms of what is is capable of doing. And I do know that uh, both sides of the aisle in DC are thinking in earnest about how to potentially further, uh, you know, tailor the program so that different sets of reporting requirements and maybe additional incentives can be, can be made so that qualified opportunity funds and or uh, developers in the real estate space are further incentivized to make sure that their different projects yield uh, social impact uh, directly to uh, those constituents living within opportunity zones. Because going back to something you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, Sam, looking at the, the, the dynamics in this country from a, a racial equity standpoint, um, a significant uh, proportion of constituents living within opportunity zones throughout the country are, are in fact minority. And it's really important to, 
to keep in mind what the the congressional intent was of the program. That was to to enhance opportunity for the existing constituents, not to change what the uh, the existing environment looks like in a way that doesn't simultaneously um, provide those opportunities for, for those who live there. And so, um, again, I, I could talk about opportunity zones for an extended period of time, but um, I would say, going back to the first part of your question before you, you broached opportunity zones, is that Again, the, the most important thing for, for folks to focus on is the confluence of different policies. And while they may not seem related, especially the, the various things that we discussed during this session uh, or directly uh, correlated, I would say that they do all in the affordable housing ecosystem relate to one another. And they all funnel back to one really important concept. And, and that's the notion of, of, of equity for all. And, and making sure that there's an equal opportunity for, for those in this country, especially those who have been historically disadvantaged, aka minorities, to, to access fair, safe, quality housing. And so, uh, you know, I think that's going to be at the core uh, at a lot of, of a lot of different discussions going forward throughout the rest of 2021 and beyond. And it should be in, in the forefront of everyone's mind, whether you're a developer, a capital markets individual, uh, or organization, or, or a nonprofit, or higher education, such as yourself, Sam. So that, that's that's my uh, response on that. Thanks, Seth. Uh, to, to to close us out, uh, what are the uh, major or most significant or potential policy developments or, or developments in the housing market that you are going to be uh, keeping an eye on in 2021? Well, I'll I'll answer that in two parts. One, I think that you know, as uh, you know, the pandemic. Uh, environment, um, you know, winds down. Uh, I'm curious to see what the impact is on, on local housing markets and housing patterns and preferences, um, you know, and on how the overall economy adjusts to that, um, what those changes might be. Because I think that we, we've seen definitely some different um, trends emerge. Um, at least we, we've heard of, of, of what folks are projecting is different trends, but it remains to be seen because we just don't have enough data and haven't had enough, um, you know, evidence built to, to confirm those yet. I'd say the other part of it too, I do think that, you know, this is really the bipartisan moment to, um, you know, address and tackle and mitigate some of the regulatory barriers that are constraining the development of housing supply that meets the needs of first-time borrowers and, and renters as well. Um, you know, the Obama administration issued a report on this in 2016. The Trump administration issued a report on this uh, in 2021. The Biden administration is talking about it. Industry and advocacy groups uh, are working on this as are think tanks on the right and left. And so I think that, that this is really the moment this year. Now, from a federal perspective, I think some of those um, regulations that could be addressed are ones that make it more difficult and expensive to purchase manufactured housing or potentially changes that would enhance the ability to utilize the low-income housing tax credit, streamline, you know, duplicative environmental review policies, or, you know, uh, really address barriers of a federal nature. 
But many of the barriers, I think, are really products of state and local policies and state and local housing markets uh, and inefficiencies thereof. Uh, we can work collaboratively on those things, like improving and accelerating the development of, uh, you know, permitting and review processes, um, allowing more buy right development, relaxing development requirements like setbacks, minimum lot sizes, parking requirements, and design standards as an example. But again, a lot of that's going to be um, collaborative work at the, the state and local level. I'll put in a plug uh, on that note for my colleagues at the Mortgage Bankers Association. We're very focused on working um, to address affordable housing issues and in, in, in closing the, the uh, minority home ownership gap. Uh, two initiatives underway right now uh, are the convergence initiatives in Memphis and Columbus. And they are really great examples of bringing together all of the relevant stakeholders in, uh, in those local markets uh, to make progress on uh, what have historically been uh, some pretty challenging issues. And so I, I point to that because I think it's gonna take, uh, you know, really this, this local collaboration and cooperation on the ground and not just kind of um, uh, policy pushes in Washington DC to move the needle meaningfully when it comes to these issues. But uh, I, I think it's a, there's a great opportunity this year. Oh, gentlemen, you've both been very generous with your time. Thanks for coming back to the program and sharing your insights. Thank you so much. That was Seth Appleton, president of the Mortgage Industry Standards Maintenance Organization, MISMO, and former assistant secretary of HUD, and Alfonso Costa Jr., executive vice president of Falcone Group and former deputy chief of staff at HUD. Both are currently serving as members of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Housing Advisory Council. Please do take a look at the program notes for uh, today's segment. You'll find links to both MISMO and uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center's Housing Advisory Council, uh, as well as the Falcone Group and others. Thanks for tuning into this segment of the Urban Lab. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for listening to the Urban Lab. For more information about the program and our host, please visit samchandon.com slash urbanlab.